Please pray with me. Lord, more than anything this morning, I ask that we would remember your Son, Jesus Christ. Remember his presence in our life and remember who he actually is. Amen. If you pick up a modern scholarly commentary on the Bible, you'll find that most of them are actually preoccupied with grammar, with the history, with the context of the particular book. The question of what does this passage mean is answered within the particular book. For example, the stilling of the storm. In the context of Mark, you'll find that at the very beginning of the gospel, Mark tells us that Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God. And at the very end of the gospel, there's a centurion at the cross who declares, surely this is the Son of God. But all along the way, that reality is hidden. The disciples struggle to see it. And so in the context of Mark, this story serves as yet one more instance where the disciples don't see it, even as Jesus' identity is being revealed. Ancient Christian writing on Scripture is very different. They recognize that the Holy Spirit was telling a story that spanned not just individual books, but all of Scripture, that all of Scripture worked together, and that Jesus ran throughout it. He showed up everywhere. They read Scripture the way that we might listen to a symphony where there's notes and themes introduced early on that recur later. Or they read scripture the way we might watch a perfectly crafted play, where there's foreshadowings at the beginning that come back up later. The Holy Spirit could be doing something in an individual book that even the author did not realize. The question of what does this passage mean was answered more, not by what is it doing in this book, but by what is it doing in the full scope of Scripture? For example, imagine if I tell you a story about a man. Let's make him a prophet. And he's in a boat, and he's fast asleep, and there's a storm raging, and the sailors are panicking. You'd be forgiven for thinking that I was talking about Jonah. Because after all, this is one of those themes, those foreshadowings introduced early on. Jesus is the new and better Jonah. He's the greater Jonah. As the greater Jonah, he wasn't guilty of abandoning his mission. And because he wasn't guilty of abandoning his mission, he doesn't have to be thrown into the water to bring peace. He merely speaks to the water. He only had to speak to the sea to tell it to repent. Because after all, that was what Jonah was supposed to do to the Ninevites. Speak. Tell them to repent. All throughout scriptures, the sin and the pride and the rage of mankind is pictured as a great sea. And Jonah was called to still a particular storm. The storm of Nineveh's sin. He was called to still it by speaking. And yet when he refused God created a living picture, a storm on the ocean, and he had to be hurled into it to bring peace. Jesus, as the better Jonah, never abandoned his call to quiet the storm of human sin. 
And so he only had to speak to the sea. Yet the picture goes deeper still. Because Jesus ultimately was hurled into the storm that is human sin. He was buried under the waves of it, and he died in its depths under the weight of human idolatry, anger, and wickedness. And just as Jonah's burial in the sea brought peace on the ocean that day, Jesus' burial in the depths of human sin and wickedness brought peace to the world. You see how beautiful it is? How deep the picture goes? Just as Jonah rose from the sea in the victory and the salvation of God, Jesus rose from the sea of humanity's sin as the victorious Lord. It's beautiful, isn't it? This is the way the ancients read Scripture. Most modern people, except perhaps English teachers, are skeptical of reading the Bible like this. They say, did Mark really mean that when he wrote this story down? He couldn't have had all of that in mind. Did Jesus really purposely reenact the story of Jonah? Or better yet, did God really set the stage for Jesus by creating the story of Jonah in the first place? Modern people get skeptical of the fact that these themes might really connect to one each other across all of Scripture. But the ancients were convinced that because God was behind it, because he was behind every word, every story, every image, every thing that reverberates through the scriptures, all of it came together and all of it focused on Jesus. Creation, the physical stuff at the very beginning, light is created, but we discover that by the very end, it's not just light because it is the Lamb of God who is in the midst of his people in Revelation who is the light. Even the light was a picture for him. The tree of life was not just a tree because we see on the cross the Son of God himself on a tree offering life to the world. You see the point that all of it aims at Jesus and every image and picture is designed to help us see him. The story of Israel itself, it points to him. Think of Isaac on the altar, a father offering his son. And we say, what is this if not a foreshadowing of Jesus, the father offering his son? We think of Joseph buried in a prison before he's exalted in power and rules, bringing salvation to the world. What is this if it's not a picture of Jesus rising from the grave in salvation to reign over the world? We think of Moses' face shining as he comes down from the mountain, and we realize this is a picture to let us see the glory of Christ, and it's a picture that's consummated on the Mount of Transfiguration. We think of David building a kingdom by gathering to himself all of the misfits, the debtors, those whose hearts were heavy and broken. And then when we see Jesus gathering up lepers, tax collectors, prostitutes, we realize that David was a picture to show us the way that Jesus would build his kingdom. Think of Jeremiah thrown into a pit, a cistern by the rulers of Jerusalem, buried in that well because they would not listen to his words. And we think, what a picture of Jesus, buried by the rulers of Jerusalem because they would not listen to his words. I could go on all day. It's beautiful. But if you're still in doubt that Scripture can be read this way, that Scripture should be read this way, Jesus himself connected himself to Jonah. He said, something greater than Jonah is here, referring to himself. 
And he said later, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man must be three days and three nights in the depths of the earth. He was the one who made the connection. And he was the one who gave license to his followers and their disciples and their disciples to read all of it is rotating around him. I want to read this story like this with you today. I want to tell you how the ancient Christians saw this story. Because they saw in this story something more than just a story about what Jesus did with his disciples. They saw that the boat, the boat in this story is an image of the church. This image begins early on with the ark, and it shoots through Scripture and reverberates all the way to the present day. The boat is the church. It's a visual picture. It's an allegory. It's a physical parable. And the boat, the church, is buffeted by twin storms. It's buffeted by wind and by waves. It's buffeted by the twin storms of persecution and temptation. Its disciples are frequently full of doubt. They're frequently full of fear. And when they're hit by the twin storms of persecution, the twin storms of temptation, they seek to protect themselves. And so they raise the walls higher. They plug the holes. They bail faster. They're seeking to protect themselves. And what this looks like in history is the church isolating itself, trying to protect itself. The church lashing back. The church doing things that it ought not be doing. But the point of this story is that if Jesus is there in the midst of the boat, if he's there in the church, there's actually nothing for it to be afraid of. There's nothing to fear if he's there. Like the disciples, the church often forgets who it is that's sitting on that captain's cushion. Like the disciples, the church oftentimes panic. It cries out to Jesus, don't you care that we are perishing? And all too often, it seeks an earthly savior to do what it thinks Jesus is unwilling to do. But Jesus responds to the church as he did to the disciples. So simple. Do you still doubt? Is your faith still so small? Like the disciples, the church oftentimes forgets that there is actually nothing in the world to be feared. There is quite literally nothing in the world to be feared. The only one that should be feared is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And this is not fear that's in terror as if he is cruel or untrustworthy, but instead fear that is full of awe and reverence. Awe and reverence because we see that all of creation is actually subjected to him. Awe and reverence because we see that every demon, Satan himself, sinful men and women, all of the temptations that assail us, all of it is muzzled and beaten when he simply says, be still, be silent. Like the disciples, the church remembers from time to time that we should be in awe of Jesus. And in those moments, we realize that he is actually more than we realized that he was, greater than we knew. The story is a foreshadowing. It's a living picture. It's an allegory for us of the life of the church. And in it, we learn that we should expect the storms of persecution and temptation. But in it, we learn that all that matters is that we turn our eyes upon our Savior. This is the answer in the end. But the story goes deeper than this. The ancient Christians read further than this. 
They recognize that every individual Christian, that's you and that's me, is a microcosm of the church. Every individual Christian is a microcosm of the church. This is why the New Testament can say that Christ is amongst you when you gather together, but he is also within your heart. Every Christian is a microcosm of the church. The characteristics of the church, at once holy and yet also still full of sin, saved and yet waiting for its salvation, justified and yet still being sanctified, the characteristics of the church are the same as the characteristics of the individual believer. And so the story ends up not just being a picture of the church. The story actually ends up being a picture of you and of me. Jesus calmed the storm to reveal himself to his disciples. He calmed the storm to reveal himself to the church. But he calmed the storm to reveal himself to you and to me. Is the boat of your life buffeted by the waves? Is the boat of your life being hit by the wind in the storm? Is temptation crashing in from every side? Is depression or despair or anxiety threatening to overwhelm you? Have the circumstances turned against you? Has your child gone astray? Has everything been turned upside down? Is the weight of it all more than you can handle? Jesus enacted a living parable amongst his disciples to say something to you. He's saying to you in this story, very simply, look at me. Trust me. Your boat will not sink if I am in it. He's saying to you, I am actually Lord over creation. I am actually God of all of the armies. I rule over land and sea, he says. Demons and evil quake before me. He says to you that temptation, temptation itself is broken in my presence. He says to you that anxiety and fear have no place near him. He says to you simply, if I speak the word, all will be at peace. All will be still. And so he calls to us through this story, look at me, look at me. St. Augustine went so far as to say that if your boat, because he took this story and he said it is a picture of the individual Christian, he said if your boat is sinking under the weight of temptation, and we can add to St. Augustine's sermon not just temptation, but if your boat is sinking under the weight of any storm, he said if your boat is sinking, it may simply be that Jesus is asleep in your life. He wanted him to clarify. He doesn't mean asleep as if Jesus is actually asleep or doing something wrong or the one at fault. He means Jesus is asleep because you have forgotten him. You have forgotten his presence. He said, if your boat is sinking, it may be that you have forgotten the presence of the Lord. And so his call to his congregation was to wake up. Remember the presence of the Lord. Quit trying to sail the little boat of your life alone. Quit acting as if Jesus is distant or does not care. Wake up. Wake up. He was urging his listeners to remember Jesus in the midst of the storm. To remember him and to remember who he is, that he is actually Lord over creation. He is the one who washes away all guilt. 
He is the one who conquers every sin and every temptation to remember who he is. The reality is, is that like the disciples, our expectation of him is far too small. Far too small. Like the disciples, we, perhaps not with our mouths, but in our hearts, feel this sense, Lord, do you not care that we are perishing? Why won't you show up? Our expectation of him is far too small, and so we wonder whether he actually cares about the storm that we are in. We act as if he doesn't. But when he rebuked creation itself, when he spoke as only God could, the disciples saw that they had no idea who they were really dealing with. He was so much greater than their expectation. He was far more than they knew, far greater. Like them, our expectation is just simply too small. And Augustine's call is the call that we need to hear. The Lord is more than you know. He is greater than you realize. He is more magnificent, more powerful, more significant. So remember him. Remember him. Like the disciples, we fear the storm and forget Jesus. And this must be reversed. They feared the storm and forgot Jesus. And we need to reverse that the way that they learned to. The storm is no threat to the one who created the wind and the waves. It isn't a threat to Jesus. Temptation is no threat to the one who's actually already paid the price for all sin. Persecution is no threat to the one who went through death and rose on the other side, thus breaking its power. Persecution is no threat to him. Poverty is no threat to the one who created and owns all things. Sickness is no threat to the one who is risen from the grave. Broken relationships are no threat to the one who is actually reconciling a hostile world to God himself. Depression is no threat to the one who holds all joy. We fear the storm and think little of Jesus, but he is the only one that we should fear. Again, not in terror, but in awe, in joy. When we remember him, when we fix our eyes upon him, we will discover that he will keep our boat afloat in the storms of life. And we remember that one day he will guide our boats into the harbor of his peace. And so remember the Lord this morning. Amen.